This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. We're making the case for live performance first and foremost. So what's the experience? What can you expect here? What is going to be my feeling of an experience going into Lincoln Center and leaving Lincoln Center? That is the same if you came to a classical music concert and if you came to a popular music concert. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Hi, Isaac. How are you? You know, I'm doing okay, but I'm going to admit... It's been a really, really busy few weeks. My Mm -hmm. kids started school the same week I started teaching and I was teaching at a new institution. So there was like all this onboarding due and I've had grant apps due and I am actually recording this episode in a very dark hotel room because I'm (laughs) traveling right now for work. So like it's all really good stuff, but I'm ready for things to slow down a bit so I can concentrate on actually creating things. Yeah, for sure. Well, to slow down for at least the next hour, who did you talk to for this week's episode? (laughs) I spoke with the wonderful and talented Shanta Fake, who uh, recently moved from running Joe's Pub at the Public Theater to being the Chief Artistic Officer of Lincoln Center. Oh, that's very cool. I'm so excited to listen to the conversation because that's such a big job, especially in terms of New York's cultural scene. Yeah. But before we get to that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week? So during our conversation, Shanta and I discovered that we both have the same, like one of our favorite operas is the same, and that's Philip Glass's Akhenaten. And uh, the Metropolitan Opera, which is one of the tenant organizations in Lincoln Center, did this really extraordinary production of Akhenaten that ran a little bit before the pandemic, and then they streamed it during the pandemic, and then it reopened after the pandemic. They brought it back. And it's just an opera that means an enormous amount to me. And so we got to geek out about Philip Glass and about how sometimes the kind of weirdest, most experimental stuff is actually the most accessible. That's very cool. I can't wait to listen to that. And Slate Plus listeners, I'm sure that you can't wait to listen to that either. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Shanta Thake. Shanta Thake, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics. I'm sure this is a question you've had to answer a lot, maybe at at parties or whatever, but you're the chief artistic officer of Lincoln Center. What the heck is that? Well, you know, first of all, it helps to define Lincoln Center because Mm -hmm. Lincoln Center is really a collection of organizations. Um, There's 11 total, including the Metropolitan Opera, Juilliard, City Ballet, the Philharmonic, and Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts is one of those. And kind of the founding institution, it's the thing that knits everything together. So although I don't artistically dictate what happens with our other sister organizations, my job, in addition to sort of filling in the gaps of the things that they don't program and bringing in audiences that perhaps wouldn't come to campus, My job is also to maintain positive working relationships with all of the rest of the artistic directors and with each other so that there's the possibility of new collaborations, new work that's created in this space that perhaps 
they're so busy focused on their own seasons, they haven't had the chance to really look up and, and see what else everybody is doing. Mm. And and you also oversee specific programming series, though, right? I like do. You're also, so can you can you run down what the actual original programming is that you do? Because it, it's in a bunch of different buckets, right? It's in a lot of different buckets. It was in an enormous amount of buckets, which were basically seven festivals that Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts was responsible for. We've taken away those buckets and really just looked at it as the summer season, which is activating all of the outdoor spaces and a lot of the indoor spaces on campus. But the summer really is is our playground. Um, we take over for this massive festival over the summer. We have over 10 stages, hundreds of artists, thousands of New Yorkers. And then for the rest of the season, the fall and the spring, we're really activating a lot around David Geffen Hall and Alice Tully Hall mm-hmm. in sometimes thematic buckets like the American Songbook series, but also really looking at what are the forms that are not represented in the Western classical canon at the Met, at the Philharmonic, that we can step into. And so that looks like a lot of poetry. It looks like popular music, contemporary work, um, and how to bring new audiences onto campus. Got it. But so is the, I mean, for example, like one of the sort of better known things that sort of transcends any one of the many institutions is the mostly Mozart festival, for example, like, are you all still doing that's, that's still a thing, right? Cause wasn't it put off for a while during the pandemic? Well, it's really like, we're trying to keep all the best pieces of those without calling mm-hmm. them a specifically mostly Mozart festival. Got it. Okay. So, that makes sense. you know, really the idea and previously one of the things that I saw from the outside and certainly that I know my colleagues experienced on the inside was that each of these different festivals had a very different marketing team, a different brochure that would go out. And it was really kind of breaking up the audience into, okay, you like international contemporary work. You like, you know, classical work. You like dance and you like, you know, social dance. So we're going to send you the Midsummer Night Swing brochure and you like contemporary music and we're going to send you the Lincoln Center Out of Doors brochure. And then you like international work and we're going to send you mostly Mozart or Lincoln Center Festival. And instead just say, you know, really what we want is audiences exploring and feeling like they can be indoors, outdoors, that they're seeing the breadth of the programming and finding themselves through the entire summer coming to Lincoln Center, not just coming to the one thing that they have bought a ticket to before. And so just expanding, kind of breaking down those silos internally, just to see what will people be adventurous and actually you know, it felt like we were self-segregating in a way our audience by the way we and were And competing for resources, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like like the Lincoln Center Festival, for example, which, you know, I, I ended under your predecessor. So prior to you, you coming on board was probably like my favorite thing Lincoln Center did. But one of the reasons why it was scrapped was that it was competing for resources with mostly Mozart and White Light and other things that were that were going on. Right. Like there was sort of a almost competition inside the organization. Yeah, I think it was for... kind of set up in that way. Unfortunately, yeah. I think there's a, a space for all of them. And and that's what we're trying to experiment with now, that it's really not competition. And I really felt that at the public theater, too, you know, having run Joe's Pub for 10 years and then stepping into a role where I was overseeing all of the programs at the public, which was public works and mobile unit and under the radar, all of these different pieces of the public theater puzzle, which really a lot of my job in that moment was to say, guess what, guys, this is we're not competing with each other, actually. Mm -hmm. And it felt that it was starting to feel that way. Okay, your program grows. So then maybe my program doesn't grow. And, you know, we have a shared vision for what is Lincoln Center. We all have our different areas of expertise in terms of curation. 
why can't we bring them into the same conversation? Mm -hmm. Why can't we assume that our audiences are ready for that conversation? Uh, And it's been really magical. I have so many follow-up questions about what you just said, because I think it's really fascinating. I'm going to start with the first one, which is that it seems to me that you are bucking a really significant trend in arts and entertainment this over the course of this century. Now we're far enough into the century, we could say the course of this century, uh, away from micro-targeting, away from niches, away from, you know what the algorithm might do, you know, cause you, you think about like these days, it's uh, a lot of things are about, we'll figure out what this individual audience member wants and then give them just that thing in a fire hose, you know, yeah. like, uh, <laughs> like you log on to Netflix and it's like, you like sci-fi comedies with a strong female lead yeah. in, from South Korea or whatever. And you know, here's the page of them. And you're actually saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to, we we did that for a long time. We're going to scrap that, and instead we're going to try to appeal in I don't know a more his, holistic way or with the the whole kind of gestalt. And and I'm just wondering what led you to kind of want to try that. One of the things I think that's driving a lot of this is we're making the case for live performance first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So what's the experience? What can you expect here? What is going to be my feeling of an experience going into Lincoln Center and leaving Lincoln Center? That is the same if you came to a classical music concert and if you came to a popular music concert. Instead of having coming in through one door of Lincoln Center and having one experience and coming in th- trying to come in through another door and feeling like, oh, wait, I'm not welcome here or I don't understand the rules here. I don't get what I'm supposed to wear here. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, all of those things, I think institutional structures around live performance have done a lot of harm in keeping people out. So I mm-hmm. think our niches have been really built in in very specific ways that have been very exclusionary. And right. so part of I think the role right now is about let's let's take down all of the barriers and see what happens. You know, see what really happens if we can remove barriers of price of Uh, exclusion of just the feeling of exclusion, if we can make the ticketing process easy, uh, legible in your language, Mm -hmm. all of those pieces, if we can start to crack the externals of just the experience and make sure uh, there's a through line of expectation um, that is shared, uh, then I think we can begin to relearn who our new audience is and perhaps we will move more niche or we're going to have, you know, of course we're already talking about what's our salsa, you know, Puerto Rican salsa audience year round. That's great. We have a solid crew of people that are going to come to every single show. That's beautiful. We want that to grow, but we also want them coming into David Geffen hall and experiencing salsa music in David Geffen hall, but also Chinake in David Geffen hall and making sure if, Anyone that loves salsa at Lincoln Center is not going to come into a different concert and feel like it's a completely foreign environment for them. Mm-hmm. And so so I do think that this live element is actually the driver right now. That's interesting. I mean, you've spoken just right here about some of the creative challenges of that, right? It shapes, you know, it, it's a creative problem. How do you make an audience feel welcome. And one of the ones that you mentioned is, of course, knowing what the rules are when you come into a space. So I'm interested, when I was a kid, Kennedy Center tried to solve that problem. And the way they solved that problem was with a very imperious list of rules in the program. 
So I'm going to just assume from the way you've been talking in this interview that that is not what you have done. So I'm kind of curious, what have you done? Yeah, we did this thing. I mean, we've done it in a couple ways, I think. Uh, the one that I'm most proud of from this summer is that we decided to create a new ritual that we did before every single show, whether it was in Alice Tully Hall or at the Oasis, which is where our big disco ball was hanging over the fountain on the plaza, um, or in our speakeasy under our driveway. So in each of these instances, whether it was a pop-up performance or a full-scale you know, rock show, we came out and did this performance with movement, and it was a call and response based on our three themes, which were Remember, Rejoice, Reclaim. And Mahogany Brown, our poet-in-residence, created this little three-line stanza that before every show, we would ask the audience to repeat after us and do this little call and response. And it has motions that Alexandria Wales, who's the great movement artist, uh, most recently in For Colored Girls, did um, taught us American Sign Language to correspond. And we did that before every show and basically said, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime community that's gathered here. We're happy you're here. It's been a long couple of years here in New York. And we do this thing, and we'd like you to do it with us. And and I think just getting people in their bodies and sort of with one another in a way, in a new way. Mm-hmm. To me, that was an attempt at that sort of idea of, like, there aren't any rules, but we're all here together. And, like, let's try to get to know one another and not alienate you, but rather bring you into the conversation. Because I do think it's another thing that's really bothered me post-pandemic or whatever we call this time is that I would go to the first show of any theater opening or, you know, after covid And there would be this big song and dance. We're so happy you're here. Like everybody, like turn to the person next to you. (laughs) Let's, you know, what we're we're bringing out this, you know, American flag that we never bring out, and uh, what a magical moment this is. And then you go to the second performance, and nothing, no, (laughs) no, no note. And and I do think there are still thousands of people coming to a show that this is their first show that they've been to uh, since the pandemic. And so just, I don't know, just a more kindness towards our audience, more of an understanding of recognition of how much they're giving up to be in a space with us, I think is, is also part of this, part of what the ritual was meant to address. You came into the role during the pandemic. Uh, you know, the things um, were at a very fraught maybe even a crisis period when, when you were coming in, you know, everything shutting down Lincoln center already had it's some financial issues, you know, a, an aging donor base being a big one of them and, and, and things like that. Do you feel like the fact that things were in such crisis made it easier for you actually to make some big changes because something had to change or, you know, how, how did <laughs> this it, is the perfect time? <laughs> well, what else are you going to do? Right. I'm just sort of, I guess another way of thinking about it is, you know, how did all of that, change how you conceptualize the role in a way that, you know, if you were going into an organization, not during the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, you might have approached it a little bit differently. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one, I came in, in, you know, mid 2021 and Henry Timms had already been at the new president of Lincoln center had been at Lincoln center, um, starting in 2019. And so had really already set this new vision in place of, equity, diversity, inclusion at every level, 
talking to and serving the constituents in a very different way, and then innovation. And and those three things were also, you know, when we started digging into them, even in the interview process, and I was like, okay, sure, sure, sure. You say this, but what does it really mean? Who's involved? Mm-hmm. I just really started to understand the depth of commitment to those tenants and how many people across the organization and even across the board that I was meeting with uh, were held. And so it's been amazingly smooth. And I think that the tempo of change is dramatic, like incredibly dramatic. I'm, I'm sure there will be case studies upon case studies about this moment because, because we really have moved a lot of things very quickly. And it really does feel like everyone's hand is on the wheel. Mm-hmm. Like the idea for choose your own, choose what you pay ticketing is not my idea. I'm bringing programming into the mix. And then the marketing team led by Leah Johnson is saying, you know, we want to make sure that ticketing is that we're playing with this idea of how do we put a value on live performance? How do individuals place a value? And how do we meet this moment of people not having the same resource that they went into the pandemic with? Uh, And so I would say there's, it's really been kind of this incredible wellspring of ideas and yes, anding one another. You know, uh, this podcast is not as storied an institution or, or as Lincoln Center, but when we uh, relaunched it as focusing on the creative process, that was a, a revision of what the podcast had done before. Yeah, And um, you know what? When you do radical changes into your format, you hear from people who are very <laughs> upset about it. You know, you're, you're long, you're long, you do lose some of that long-term audience. I'm sure you've had some experience with that over the past few years. So I'm just wondering about how you think about it, how you navigate finding a new audience or new audiences, I should say, while also bringing along the people who've been there, you know, for years or decades, even just how you've approached that, you know, as a creative problem as part of your job. Yeah, I definitely get a lot of feedback. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's a definite part of the job. It's something I was I thought I was prepared for. I think, you know, one of the things I like to say to everyone that I work with is that I like to take the work very personal. You know, it is very personal. It's a very personal exercise to bring the things you love onto stages and hope other people like them. If anyone's ever made a mixtape, you know that feeling <laughs> of what that what that's like. But I try not to take it personally in that, you know, you have to get out of the way of that as soon as possible and and let the artists do their work in the best way possible and meet the audience that's there for them or a new audience and and try to not let it affect you personally. But of course it does, you know, there's all the things. But the in terms of the audience, you know, I I actually think we have a lot of work to do institutionally across the board, in every institution, of learning who our our audiences are. And our audience is New York City. So what is the work that speaks to New York City right now? And, and how do we bring everyone along for the ride? And everyone along for the ride means exactly that. That means, you know, people that are 75 and up that love Mahler more than anything else on the planet and want to see Mahler and and want to feel at home at Lincoln Center. I want them to feel at home at Lincoln Center. You know, (laughs) my goal is not to shut that door. My goal is to make sure that somebody else, a 30-year-old living across the street, 
that has never been to Lincoln Center that they also feel at home at Lincoln Center. And so so there's I think it's it's definitely lives in a scarcity mindset. I mean, certainly we don't have, you know, limitless resources to address all of these constituents, but I do think there's a there's plenty of space in the middle uh, to to find each other. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Shanta Thake. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Shanta Thake. When you started at Lincoln Center, you had this entrance interview with the New York Times in which you sort of talked about this very thing. And, and you said that there were sort of a few operative questions that you wanted to explore during your tenure. What's missing? What have we left out? What stories aren't we telling that feel like they're demanding to be told in this moment? Now, to some extent, those questions, you know, the answers to those aren't stable. But do you feel like after a year and change you have some sense of what the answers to those questions are right now? And if so, I'm, I'm wondering what your answers to those questions are in the moment. Well, one I would say, you know, in terms of the what's missing question, I think what I found as I, like, dug back into what is Lincoln Center is that nothing was missing, actually. That there is such a wealth of curation and beauty and audiences and artists that were part of the Lincoln Center fabric, but in different ways and resourced very differently. So, you know, there would be artists that would feel, again, totally at home going into the atrium and having a residency there. Like our Via series, which is a salsa, social dance salsa series. It's amazing. And it makes the atrium this like incredible dance hall once a month. That audience and those artists were getting paid at a different rate. They had, were a very different set of marketing materials built around them because it was a free series, still a free series. And, you know, we're never really part of any other part of Lincoln Center. So this year, we obviously brought that into the center of our social dance programming from, you know, what was Midsummer Night Swing, but is now, you know, more social dance writ large uh, on the campus. And I think there's a thousand stories like that. So it's an interesting, you know, I think my formulation at the beginning of that question is is interesting now to hear that question because my and I felt this all the time at the public too you know 20 years at the public theater anytime you'd think you had a new idea actually it was an idea that probably Joe Papp had like you know jotted down in his sleep you know 60 years ago and it's just a question of like how that idea and the artists of now are meeting that exact same question now you know like the it's circular we're all humans we're all grappling with some of the same big things but how we resource those artists and communities is was very different. And so so I do think that that's been the big shift is, does everyone know these voices? Is everyone hearing this? Does everyone know that this is happening? Same thing with our family programming. Um, our We have an incredible access program, you know, that 
works with all the constituent organizations and brings audiences with dementia to programming, that brings families with members with autism into Lincoln Center across every single constituent organization. It's magical, but I don't know that many people know about that <laughs> at all mm-hmm. as or think about that as part of our programming. And I think we should be just as proud of that programming. It should be on, you know, my new metaphysical brochure in the sky <laughs> uh, as, as what we're doing at David Geffen Hall. So I think, you know, again, changing the sort of platforms that we're offering uh, our artists and audiences and the value proposition has been the biggest, the biggest shift. And how are you finding new artists to work with? Because, you know, obviously you have a very storied career at Joe's Pub. I mean, you know everybody as far as I know. But there are some, there. but there's still, you know, there's a new generation coming up. There's going to be another one after them. Like, are you out a lot of nights of the week seeing things? Are people sending you DVDs of their, their work that you're watching all day? Or I guess it's screener links now. Uh, do you have a staff that helps you find people like, like it's a mix of all of those things i have i have multiple curators on staff and actually like a lot of our producing team are creatives in their own right they're seeing work so they're all seeing work all the time and i learned that at joe's pub too that there's you know i take credit for everything obviously <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of works like a writer's room in a way where you know you're kind of thinking through the ideas and like what's the what's the story we want to tell how's it working you know i think eventually we'll move a little bit more into into, okay, now we've got this project that we've committed to three years down the road. But right now, it's much more about, like, here's the narrative. Who are the artists you love? I'm out five nights a week, most weeks, sometimes six. Um, I try to be home one or two nights a week. Mm-hmm. and But now a lot of my time is spent going to the constituent programming, so the constituent organization. So I'm going to see the opera that's up. I'm seeing the Philharmonic. I'm seeing Chamber Music Society because it's important for my job to make sure I have tabs on what's the general artistic direction of all of those folks. But it's a it's a mix, but it's definitely like a, it's one of those uh, jobs that I think I, if I could do it again, <laughs> I may have told my younger self that I'd be... You know, it's a job that's all day and all night. <laughs> right. Um, it seems to me that part of the job is being an open-minded person, right? That, that I mean, you probably don't know, you know, or no one person knows and likes, I don't know, the music of John Adams as much as Mahler, as much as salsa dancing, as much as... Bunraku, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, no one person can really contain all those multitudes. So you do have to cultivate, at least I would have to, <laughs> maybe I'm just talking about my own limitations, something of a, of a, of a open-mindedness and aesthetic openness. How do you do that? Cause I think lots of people listening to our show, you know, want to be more adventurous. You know, how do you, how do you cultivate that within yourself? When I try to go into everything, really thinking there's something here to teach me, even if it's something I hate, you know, even if I walk out of this, I think there's an artist at the center of this, that this is the thing they had to say right now. This is the work that had to get out of them. And they are responding. They're responding to something that's happening in the world, in their personal world, in their community, in the news, you know, so, so what is it, you know, and, and it's not to say that I like everything. In fact, you know, I'm not even sure it's 50, 50, (laughs) Right. Well, well, 90% of all art is bad, right? Isn't that the rule of thumb? So, you know. <laughs> but I think there's there's a bravery in it. And I think there's a there's a craft. And, you know, I would say Joe's Pub was a huge, you know, I worked at Joe's Pub for six years before I ran it or five years. 
And when I started there, I'd come out of college as an actress, um, as an aspiring actress. I like to correct myself. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I would say, you know, the majority of what I was listening to was like Tom Waits and, you know, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and, the college uh, you, trifecta. Yeah, totally. Like I came out so basic. <laughs> and and I I had a background, you know, as a singer and I I had taken various music lessons. But like what I would turn on in any given case was like the same songs that everybody knows. And working at Joe's Pub, it was just like, you know, wonderment and amazement every day. You know, it was it was just like there's a space for people here. And actually, that space is not about me, and there, but there are ways that it unlocks different parts of me, and and that's magical. And I think if you can go into to develop your own taste and expand it, I think you have to go in just being really humbled by what you're about to see, and 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 just assume it has something for you. And that's you know, I don't know that it's like everybody can be a curator, everybody wants to be a curator, but I do think there's something about just trusting your own intuition. And being able to say, like, you know what, I didn't like that, but I'm going to try again. Like, I'm going to go see something again. <laughs> I'm gonna, I don't need to have everything I see be basically like the karaoke hits of my favorite band. Right. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned taste because I have this idea in my head. And please disabuse me of this if this is wrong. But, you know, when you start out and you're just like curating a series of something, right? So much of the job is really just about do you have good taste? You know, and and it seems to me that as it gets larger and larger, as the job gets larger and larger, less and less of it becomes about your taste. Is that is that true? Like how much of your job now feels like it's about having good taste as opposed to, I don't know, nurturing the right relationships or or reconceiving the space or blah, blah, blah. I don't know. That's a really interesting framing. I feel like the there does come like a confidence of like decision making, right? That that comes over time when you're leading an organization and certainly around your own taste and being able to say to other people like, yes, go with that. Don't go with that. This feels aligned. This doesn't like get rid of this. That didn't work, (laughs) you know? And being able to say that with some level of expertise or some belief in my own taste. I'm amazed by people that move to a new city and take on like a huge performing arts center and and then and then have their taste sort of be juxtaposed on top of a new place that probably needs very different things and i think you have to kind of do this giant deep dive and a forgetting of yourself to to sort of enter into that um so i do think there there is less for sure of just you're just kind of looking at the landscape and again joe's pub is a great example of like I definitely didn't curate that room. I curated a lot of that room and I curated from within my team and from within the artists that played there and said, like, you know what? You should meet my friend. He's great, too, and he has a band and he sells out Rockwood. <laughs> you know? And you're like, OK, let's try it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so there, it's always a mix. And I think to get too in your own ego about your taste is like just a disaster and, and really confines the scope of the institution. Um, and I think I do think space does teach us a lot of what makes sense and things that, you know, will did I think I'd be spending an enormous amount of resource and time thinking about like social dance? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. But we built a giant dance floor. And so so now I think about it all the time. And so thinking about like what did we do, what was missing, who knows more about that. And that's that's kind of the joy. So I don't know. I don't know where it is, but I think 
like my own taste certainly is not at the forefront of my mind anymore at all. Now, I'm not saying the pandemic is over. I don't think it's over, but restrictions are lifting. People are going out more. There's the bivalent vaccines. Everyone listening to this, get your bivalent vaccine so you can enjoy the nightlife of New York. Um, I imagine this is a moment where maybe your job's starting to change again a little bit. And I'm just wondering what you're looking forward to in the future. What are the changes you feel are happening? I feel like I had a nice on-ramp by the majority of the programming so far living in the outdoors. So we had like just this explosion of, again, hundreds of shows over the course of the summer, which really it felt like COVID was kind of a thing of the past, even though it obviously wasn't. But you really didn't have those same restrictions. So I think the job now is really about taking that energy and like trying to hold on to it for dear life and, and bringing it into an environment that continues to be safe and and gives people that that feeling um and i think we're on our way in fact we're bringing one of the shows that we did this summer that was one of my faves which was the biggie smalls tribute the orchestral tribute um and bringing that into david geffen hall and i think you know one of the things is really also that's this big shift for folks is is the ticket price situation, you know, and, and not being able to recognize in a lot of ways. I mean, truly, I speak from such a place of privilege in, in being at Lincoln Center in this moment, but not being able to meet people where they are financially and still having these shows, which cost an enormous amount to produce and bring and create and, and really wanting to have the same amount of people experience them at the same ticket price that they used to come and experience them. And that's just not the, that's not, that's not going to happen for maybe for a long time. Maybe it should never happen again, you know, that, but that requires a totally different conversation at like every level that, you know, has been happening of course, but I think it really requires a different relationship to art in our entire country (laughs) around what we value and how we value it and who supports it and who funds it. And that's, you know, a larger conversation, obviously. But I'm excited about all of it. I think I have a gigantic privilege of being able to be in a space where we can really experiment with ticket price and do choose what you pay ticketing and see and bring people along with us and continue to be in that conversation in a real way that we can respond to. It may mean less programming over time. You know, there will be things that we may have to give up. But right now it's kind of full throttle and we're just going to we're going to keep building. Well, Shanta, thank you so much for coming on Working and talking about your role and your many creative processes. It's been a real treat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you and see you. Isaac, that was such a great conversation. And I really appreciated Shanta giving us an explanation of exactly what her job is. Because I think based on the title alone, I would not have guessed the specifics of what she does at Lincoln Center. Were you sort of aware of this before speaking with her? I mean, a little bit because I remember the um, article in the Times when she got the job, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Because there was a big announcement and she had a big, you know, interview in the Times about her vision for the job. So I had a vague idea. But I I did not actually realize how much programming it was and that all of that's one person or one person and a team. Um, I knew that like they did some stuff over the summer. I knew (laughs) that, you know, they had some festivals uh, and I knew that that job was responsible for the stuff that the 11 tenant organizations don't do. I just didn't quite realize the, the vast scope of the programming that she and her team are responsible for. Yeah. 
It was also so interesting in your conversation with Shanta because as someone who once worked in a development department that is the fundraising department at Player Arts Horizons, I think when you're looking at an institution like Lincoln Center, you think about the art that they produce first, but you don't necessarily think about how many other cogs have to be turning in order to like get those shows going and to draw in audiences. Yeah. And I think this idea is something that we talk about on the show a lot, that it's very difficult to separate art from the machine and kind of the bigger financial trappings that help to produce and support it. When do you think you first sort of realized that there was all this other stuff at work? Well, first of all, I love that you started at Playwrights Horizons because that's where my wife started when she first moved to oh New York. Gosh, she was no in way. the Yeah, she was in the marketing department at Playwrights. Wow. But I, when did I know that? I actually knew that, I think, younger than most people because I, mm-hmm. when I was a child actor in D.C., the first show I was in when I was 12 to 13 was this musical Falsettos. And it turned out to be... Oh, my a, gosh. Yeah, yeah, I was Jason in that. And it, it was a oh big hit. And it ran from like early May to mid-August. And so I couldn't go to summer camp that summer or do uh-huh. anything else. And my mom was like, mm. you are not sitting on your ass playing Space Quest Four all summer. You have to go volunteer at the theater. And so I spent that summer in the administrative offices, you know, folding the fundraising letters from mailings and, you know, checking spreadsheets and all sorts of stuff. I will say the funniest job I have because the, the theater, which is the studio theater, it's, it's a much larger organization now than it was then. They were even, uh-huh. they were renting the two floors of the building that their theater and admin offices were on. Oh, and wow. um, so one of the things I had to do was use the pay phone in the lobby to call information because information 411 calls are free from a pay phone, but they aren't from your office phone Whoa. so that I could look up the contact information of subscribers who had let their subscriptions lapse and their contact info was out of date so that we could track those people down and call them and see if they <laughs> wanted to subscribe again. Oh my God. I can't believe you were doing this. It was like a 12 or 13 year old. Like you yeah. shouldn't have to do like that kind of job. At that no, age. I mean, someone had to do it. You know, I'm an extrovert. They were just like, here, sit, here's a big, there was literally, um, That's index so cards, you know, it's a box of index cards. And they were like, mm-hmm. go through this and call information for each one. And then if I recognized the voice, I'd try to like change mine. Oh my gosh, that's so wild. I will ask you more about this later. (laughs) But to return to your conversation with Shanta, I was also so fascinated to hear you talking about the way that you've perceived Lincoln Center as moving away from like niches and microtrends, or maybe the theater world at large moving away from this. And I was curious what first made you think that the cultural landscape was moving that way? Uh, I don't know if the cultural landscape at large is moving that way. I mean, we seem to be micro targeting even more, you know, there's such a flood of things coming out every day in every field of culture. And we have access to so much of it at once that it's really hard to navigate. And so we've essentially outsourced that navigation to things like algorithms that then say like, Oh, you like this? Well, here's a thousand things just like it. And they give Mm -hmm. you more and more of, of what you want. And so, Um, there's a plus side to that, but the downside is, you know, it can be harder to discover things that you wouldn't have known before you tried them, but you like them, you know, it's harder to make those kinds of discoveries. But the, the weird irony is that in live performance, the opposite in some ways have been true. You know, there are general interest theaters like the public, right. That do a mix of new plays and classics and realistic Mm -hmm. work and experimental work. But then there's places like playwrights horizons, which only does new plays or classic Mm -hmm. stage, which only does 
classics. And in the old subscriber model, you would subscribe to one of those theaters because you liked its mission, you liked the work it did, and really you liked the individual taste of the artistic director, which would be reflected yeah. in that season. And theaters have really started to move away from a lot of that. Look, Playwrights Horizon still does new plays. Classic Stage still does classics, right? But there is an idea that like, Maybe it shouldn't just be the artistic director and their vision and taste, for example. Yeah, right? yeah. And so what Shanta is doing is really fascinating. She's taking programming that has served a lot of different people. I mean, Lincoln Center's programming serves a wide, wide constituency. I think she said at one point our constituency is the city of New York, right? But mm -hmm, the way mm -hmm. they used to serve those people is in this incredibly segregated, sequestered way. And she's trying to serve those same groups, but break down all the barriers between them so they might go experience the stuff the other groups do, which is uh, uh, fascinating. And um, uh, I mean, I hope it's successful. It seems to have been successful so far. So I hope it continues to be successful because the mm -hmm. idea of getting people interested in as wide a variety of culture as possible is, I think, really beautiful. You actually touch on exactly what I wanted to talk about next, which is what Shanta brought up about the idea that some art, especially in institutions like Lincoln Center, which have this really storied history, feel kind of gatekept, not just yeah. by price point or the stereotypical audience member or institutional history. And what is there that we can do to combat that kind of structure? I mean, the biggest thing really is the price point of tickets, right? Yeah. Like if you can keep ticket prices low, really reasonable some of that stuff will start to take care of itself over time. But at the same point, it's like, we don't want to necessarily wait for that to gradually change. We want it to change yeah. now. We want people to feel welcome. You know, I, it's not always enough just to lower the tickets. I remember, um, the first time I did rush tickets at the Met, did you ever do the rush line mm -hmm. at the Met? Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of times love the rush line at the Met, but the first time I did it, you know, uh, at that point, when you turned the corner to go up the stairs to the box office from where the line was, there's an area where the very rich people are parking and getting out and going into the building as well <laughs> that, that you can see sort of through a window. And I just remember this woman in a fur coat walking by as I turned the corner and looking at me and laughing. Right <sighs> now. That's the kind of culture you have to change, but you can't change that culture by just saying to your audience members, don't be assholes, right? That, that move mm -hmm. is not going to work. No one thinks they're an asshole. Um, but there are things that, that you can do. You can make sure that everyone knows that there's no dress code, right? Yeah. You can, uh, and then you can get rid of your dress code. If you have one, you can, um, simply say everyone's welcome. You know, there's a lot of signs up at various theaters now saying all are welcome for a reason. You can do rush tickets and student discounts to get younger people in. You can also make sure that like everyone in the institution shares the goal of making people feel welcome so that when someone comes to the box office, they're treated with respect. The ushers treat them with respect. The rules and norms of the space, like don't talk during the show or whatever, are really transparent and clear. But the other thing I got to say is that there's a lot of times that theaters want, for example, young audiences, right? Because the mm -hmm. theater audience is always too old. Every, every generation <laughs> thinks the theater audience is too old. And they want a younger audience, but they don't actually want to change any of their programming or anything they do. Do you know what I mm -hmm. mean? They want the young audience's yeah. hipness and cachet and money, but they don't actually want to bother putting on work that might appeal to them. So it also does need to be reflected in the work as well. Yeah, it's so funny because it does sound like 
on on the one hand, uh, we're going to get to this because I, I want to talk about the idea of like changing programming being kind of a really big step for any institution where that's like the limit of what you can really do. And so much of the rest of what you're saying and the rest of what is possible just relies on people not being classist, which is yes. like an impossible demand to enforce in any meaningful way. Um, yeah, especially at a huge organization where you can't be everywhere at once. Right. But um, you can make sure that like the management of the box office knows that like, you know, you need to be nice to people or, you know, whatever it is. You can but change that. It does feel like a, almost a pre-existing audience problem because the people who run the box yeah. office and the people who are ushers, in my experience, are usually people who are at the same, I guess, social strata as the people who right. the really sn- yes. the snobs, I guess, to put it very, very simply, don't want in their space. Yeah, right. It's hard. I agree with you that it's hard. Do you yeah. know? And and one of the reasons why we know it's hard is that there's plenty of institutions that are very well-meaning and sincere in their efforts to try to take down those barriers, and they've really struggled to do it. Yeah, it's just it's not an easy problem to get over. Not at all. But the conversation that you had with Shanta about how rebooting something can really aggravate some of your old audience was so funny <laughs> because I think it's encountered in almost every single field of art, yeah. but also really a crucial part of the creative process because you don't want to just keep doing the same thing. How do you deal with that kind of very stubborn response? It's hard. You just got to tell yourself, you know, some people must have hated Revolver when the Beatles put it out, right? I I don't know. Um, I think that one of the things you can do is complain about the response that you're getting over Slack. That's definitely important to, like, have a space that it's not public. Sure. But also, like, you can only make the work that you can make. Like, in Working's case, and we don't get... I, I should say most of the interactions we have with our listeners are are very, very positive, right? Um, but when we did change the format for about a year, we got some pretty angry or sometimes even just kind of sad, disappointed. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Emails about the change in our format, but we're not going to go back to the old format. I'm not the right person to host the show in the old format. You know, like it just wouldn't work. And we did that format for like over a decade. Shanta was brought in to make the kinds of changes she's making. She's not going to suddenly going to take that all back. She would rather get a job somewhere else. You know what I mean? So in those situations where the change really can't be taken back, you're not going to move on to something else. All you can do is be polite to those folks, thank them for their input, you know, tell them you hope they'll bear with it and maybe they'll grow to like it. And then if not, just wave them a polite goodbye, I guess. Yeah, that really is the best response to anything in that kind of range where yeah. it's like just relentless negativity. It's like the best thing you do is be like, okay, well, that's your opinion and this is mine. So that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Okay, one final question based yes. on your conversation with Chanta. Is 90% of all art bad? Isn't it? You're saying this like this is a controversial statement. No, I mean, you know, that 90% figure, it's an old critic's rule of thumb that like 90% of the things that you're going to be watching or reading or whatever, Mm -hmm. they're they're probably not going to be good. And honestly, I think that's generally been my experience if you include things that are like, okay, in that 90%. I'm not, you know, like it, it, maybe it's sure. 90% of all art is bad to mediocre and only 10% of it. Sure. Good. I mean, like, <laughs> like take television this year. I Googled it. There were 559 original scripted TV series in wow. for, slated for 2022. 
Is there any way that more than 55 of those are worth watching? I mean, we'll never know because even watching 55 TV shows in a year sounds maddening to me. But like, I mean, seriously, (laughs) if you think about it, do you think there are more than 55 TV shows that are like good right now? Probably not, right? I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched enough of them. And that usually is the bigger problem where there is so much art and not enough time to really consume all of it in a meaningful way. Yes, absolutely. That said, thank you to our listeners for listening to this show. We really hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gab Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Shanta Fake, and thank you to our producer Cameron Drews, who's not only in like the 10% of good producers, mm-hmm. he's in like the 0.1% of extraordinary producers. Absolutely. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with writer and speaker Annie Duke. Until then, get back to work. Hey, Slate Plus listeners, thank you for uh, everything that you do. We've got a little extra really fun conversation uh, between me and Shanta about a shared favorite opera. We hope you enjoy. So while we were off mic for a second, the two of us were just suddenly talking about our shared love of the Philip Glass opera, Akhenaten, which the Met produced before the pandemic and then screened during the pandemic and then revived after the pandemic. And actually... I spent a lot of the pandemic when I was living at my uh, mother-in-law's house in rural Virginia, walking in a hundred degree heat through fields. Cause this is the only exercise I got <laughs> listening to the Akhenaten score over oh and over God. and over again. So it's like, uh, but um, yeah, it's amazing, right? It's so good. It's so good. And I think it's, it's one of those things that I just want everybody to see all of the time. When you think like, okay, or you hear somebody say, well, the opera has nothing for me. And I think, oh, my God, this is one of the most vital pieces of any time. And it has something for everyone. And there's something about it that's also this great equalizer in that there's no words, really. You know, it's like you just have to know like four lines of text and and then the rest unveils itself to you. And so I think it's it's something about how it takes away so many of the things that people think are barriers or I'm reading the screen and I'm not reading fast enough or it's in a different language. And this is like, again, nobody knows what the hell's going on <laughs> text-wise. And that's it, you don't need to because you're watching this magic unfold. And you can really, you know, it used to make me crazy. I've done a lot of commissions of, of musicians over time. Mm-hmm. And and often when a theater dramaturg would come into it, they would say, well, there's no story here or the story. I can't follow the story. And actually, the story is musical. You know, the, the story is being carried by the tone and the way the voices are textured and how that music has been used over time. And that that is telling a story and that's telling the story, actually. And if you spend all your time getting mucked up in the in the narrative structure, the hero's journey, like, yeah, you missed it, you know? <laughs> there right. there was a story being told. And so I love um I love that it kind of gets rid of that for folks and you just can just, you know, revel in the glory of this beautiful, complicated story that's also very simple. I don't know. It's amazing. Yeah. 
that opera, there's something really mysterious about it to me, which I think is actually part of why it's one of my favorite pieces of music that I just always feel enveloped in a, in a mystery. Like it's interesting that you raise that, you know, as a, as a curator, because you know, particularly with the 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 mission ideas you have around audience, part of what you're trying to do is say, like, you might not understand this thing you're gonna see. Like, like on in a rational left-brained way. You're gonna have an experience. I'm giving you an experience and just let yourself, you know, have that. Glass does that because it's so abstract. There's like no language in it other than the spoken narration. You know, that it, it it's that minimalist music. You know, but do you, you must think about that yourself in your job about like how do I tell you just relax and have an experience? Yeah, I, I think uh, that that is part of it. And I think again, I don't know. I mean, it's so yes, I do think that's the job. That is actually a huge part of the job, is just like relax. You don't you don't have to be an expert. And so much again, of I think how people feel like they have to enter into an institution is as an expert. And if they don't, they just feel like a dummy the whole time. And they just sit there feeling dumber and dumber as the like evening wears on. And then they leave and every standing ovation and they stand too. And then they just feel like, wow, I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get it because I'm dumb or because this wasn't for me. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of that as a curator that I'm trying to offer these experiences to people in a way that says like, yeah, you, you don't have to get it. Like it's, it's, it is, it is yours to take in an experience in the same way it's anyone else's that happens to know every piece of Philip Glass music from all time. And obviously like I haven't programmed Doc Nutton, the wonderful Peter Gelb has programmed Doc Nutton. <laughs> so he's done that part of the job for me. But the, but the, uh, that is, I think the, the joy of that piece. And you go to that piece actually, and I see so many people from, and partially because Anthony Rothkostanza, obviously, is the lead, um, who has such a deep relationship to a lot of the downtown community in New York. But Philip Glass, again, decades of, of sort of downtown experimental communities coming. And it's, you know, the first time that they've come onto campus, too. And it's, it's beautiful. It's so magical. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, We'll catch you next time right here on Working. Thanks again for all of your support.